0: In Dante's Inferno, there was a sign that was above the entryway into the gates of hell. And maybe you've read that book and you remember the sign. Maybe it's been too long and you don't remember the sign, but the sign said this Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. And for some of us, that's been how we've approached the book of Ecclesiastes for our entire lives. We hit it with daily Bible reading and we think to ourselves, okay. Here comes this book about futility and meaninglessness and vanity and it's just going to be a beating and I'm going to have to just grin and bear it and get through it and I don't understand it and I don't know why it's here. But here comes Ecclesiastes. Let's just figure out a way to get through the book. But what I hope to do with this series is to change your perspective, to reframe your perspective on what I feel like is a book with so much wisdom and so much Uh, benefit, Uh, a book that helps us to to understand how to live in this life, in this world that we live in, a book that was written by one of the wisest men who has ever walked the face of the earth, a book that is just as relevant for us sitting here today in the midst of a pandemic as it was when it was first written, a book that will encourage you, a book that will challenge you, a book that will convict you, a book that will uh, teach you. Lord willing, and and teach us together how it looks and what it looks like to live our lives under the sun, as Solomon uh, so often says in this book. But as we think through this series, here's some goals that I want us to walk away from. As you're thinking about, okay, so at the end of a series on the book of Ecclesiastes, what's the point? What do we want to do with this series? And the first one is this, I want you to love this book. I want you to look forward to it. When we come up on Ecclesiastes, I want you to be thinking to yourselves, man, I can't wait to get back into the book of Ecclesiastes because there is so much that's encouraging, so much good, so much rich wisdom to be gleaned from this book. So I want you to love Ecclesiastes. Second thing is, I want you to love your life, the life that God has provided you with, the life that you live day in and day out here under the sun. The book of Ecclesiastes, as we'll begin to see even tonight, is not a book that wants you to be morose and depressed and just waiting for the rapture, thinking to yourself that that's the only thing that really matters is what's coming in eternity. No, the book of Ecclesiastes is a book that helps you understand how can I love my wife better? How can I love my kids better? How can I love my job better? How can I just sit back and enjoy the life that God has provided for me. And so as we study the book of Ecclesiastes, I hope is, uh, my hope is, my prayer is, is that you will walk away and say, man, I I love my life that God has provided me even more as a result of my time studying this book than I did beforehand. Third thing is I, I want us to learn from death, to learn from death. One of the most famous passages in Ecclesiastes says that it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. It's better to go to a funeral than to go to a New Year's Eve party. And I want us to be able to learn why that is. Solomon deals a lot with the subject of death and mortality in this book. He deals a lot with the realities that have to stare we have to stare cold in the face when we think about our future and we realize that there are two certainties in life, right? Death and taxes. Well, death is coming to all of us at some point in time or another, unless the Lord comes back first. And we have to ask ourselves, and Solomon helps us to ask this question, How should we live in light of the fact that we will die? What should we learn from death? Something else I want us to walk away from this study with is a a looser grip on the things of this world. We'll start to to pry that grip open a little bit even tonight in this opening passage, but I want us to think about rightly uh, the the things in this world, the good things in this world, and, and to understand how to love them, how to approach them, how to enjoy them in the right way without them becoming an ultimate thing in our lives without them uh, maintaining and, and taking a place in our hearts that only God should have. And the book of Ecclesiastes helps us to loosen our grip on the things of this world. And then finally, I want us to, as a result of this book, understand more of what it looks like to be prepared for the Bema Seat. The Bema seat. Now there are, are multiple judgments that are coming in, in the end times, but The only judgment that that Christians really are looking at in the end times is the, the bema seat of Christ. And that is where we will appear before the seat of Jesus, the judgment seat of Christ. It says in the Bible to receive what is due for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. This is not a judgment of whether or not you will go to heaven or hell because this is a judgment for believers. This is a judgment of eternal reward. And if you fast forward, not to be a spoiler, but if you fast forward to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the things that Solomon concludes is he says this, he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. And then he goes on and he says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so we see that the book of Ecclesiastes helps us to live ready for that day, helps us to live ready and prepared for the day that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will have him evaluate our lives and we will receive what is due for what we have done, whether good or evil. And so that is why we're studying this book. That's the, Those are some of the goals for this series that as we go along, we'll revisit because this is what we want to draw out of and accomplish in this book. But the book opens with a greeting. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And and if you've already heard me refer to the author of this book as Solomon, maybe you're wondering to yourself, well, how do we know that for sure? Because there's some debate on whether or not Solomon is the one that wrote this or whether there were two authors and on and on, we could go into the, the spiral of, of higher criticism on it. But here's what I'd, I'd like to suggest. I, I think the only logical conclusion based on this opening verse is that this is Solomon. And here's why. Number one, he says he's the son of David. Well, we know the the only one that was king who was the, the son of David directly was who? Solomon, right? And so we know that this was Solomon. And maybe we would say, well, what if this was a descendant of David that was reigning in Jerusalem, king in Jerusalem? But that, even that phrase right there, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. After this, what, what happens after Solomon's reign? It, it turns into what? the divided monarchy. And you've got the, the kings to the north and the kings to the south. And so what you have is this, this split rule and the split reign. But what we see in verse one here is this statement of, of a, a unified ruler who's reigning over all of Israel in Jerusalem. And I think as we look at that and the fact that he's the son of David, I think the the text internally points to the fact that this is King Solomon, along with the fact that this is a book of wisdom literature. And Solomon also wrote the book of Proverbs and the book of Song of Solomon. And he is the, the one that was the, the wisest above all. You remember the, the, the time when, when Solomon was granted anything that he would desire from the Lord. And Solomon's response was, God, make me a man of wisdom, right? And the Lord said, well, because you didn't ask for wealth and in, in years of life and everything else, I'll add all those things to you, but I'm also going to make you one of the wisest men who's ever walked the face of the earth wise enough that the queen of Sheba would even come from far away to to sit in his presence and to hear him speak. Well, here we have some more of the ruminations of this wise king, King Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes. But he opens not just with the greeting, but verse two. If there is a well-known passage in Ecclesiastes, a a most well-known verse in Ecclesiastes, it's most likely this one. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, everything, all is vanity. That's the verse that we read when we come to the DBR and we think to ourselves, okay, here it goes again. <sighs> a book about vanity, 12 chapters about vanity. And we buckle up for this time of just a, a, a gigantic beatdown." But I think we've misunderstood it. In fact, commentator David Gibson, who wrote a book called Living Life Backward, you can talk to your leaders. That's the the commentary that I provided for them. And everyone that I've talked to so far that's gotten their hands on it has loved this book. It's by a guy named David Gibson. You may look into it yourself. We do have it in our bookstore. You can also find it on Lagos. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, Living Life Backward, great book, great commentary. Flips the script on so much of what we've thought about Ecclesiastes. But he says this, he says, when we come to this word vanity, He says, we tend to read this word as if it's spoken by an undergraduate philosophy student who comes home after his first year of studies and confidently announces that the universe as we know it is pointless and life has no meaning. This is the traditional view of Ecclesiastes. The view that this is just a book about the meaninglessness of life and just get through it and get to heaven. And you know, maybe this has been your perspective as well. And maybe you're sitting out there wondering, how am I going to survive 17 weeks on the book of Ecclesiastes? And maybe you're just now realizing I'm going to have to survive 17 weeks on the book of Ecclesiastes. But as I've already stated and and alluded to earlier, the goal with this series is to to flip the script. The goal with this series is to transform the way that you've looked at this book. The goal with this series is to take this book from being a book of, uh, of depression to a book of hope from a, a, a book that leaves you beaten down to a book that leaves you lifted up and, and, and ready to take on what's coming tomorrow, as long as we have tomorrow. I'll give you a warning. This opening passage, as we've already seen in the first two verses, it, it is rough, but it's an important passage and it's kind of Solomon's initial knockout blow because he wants to knock us down so that he can build us back up in the rest of the book. He wants to correct the faulty thinking so that then he can begin to instill the truths about how we should approach this life under the sun as the rest of this book unfolds. And so stick with me as we go through this, as we walk through this book on this subject of vanity. Vanity, it's from the Hebrew word hevel, Havelm. And it's a word that's been translated different times. This word occurs 34 times though in the entire book of Ecclesiastes, 34 times. It's, it's a, a book about vanity. But we have to understand what that word means for us to begin to wrap our minds around the perspective that Solomon wants us to have on this world. Because we hear the word vanity and sometimes we think, okay, vanity, it's, it's meaninglessness. And that's sometimes how it's even translated. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's the, the cry of the, the emo goth, right? That, that's, that's the cry of the person that's depressed. That's the cry of the person that has no reason to, to wake up tomorrow. Woe is me. This is Eeyore's approach to Ecclesiastes. Meaninglessness or uh, of a similar vein, futility that everything is futile. Why even bother chasing after the things of the world? Because this world is futile. Let's just get our holy huddles. Let's just get in our cliques. Let's just huddle up together as Christians and wait for the Lord to come back and rapture us. And in the meantime, let's just retreat and be hermits from everything that the world is and has to offer around us, because it's all futile. This can often lead to frustration, which is another way that this word has been understood that this idea of Havel it communicates that we should be frustrated with life, frustrated with our lot in life, frustrated that we have to be here and not with God, frustrated that we're not yet in heaven, not yet with the, in the, the presence of God's glory. And certainly we should have a holy discontent as it's so often been put, but to live our lives frustrated, I don't think that's what Solomon was driving at. Another concept though is this one, fleeting that this world and its pleasures are, are fleeting. In fact, there are many who have suggested that hevel means the idea of, a, of breath, which it may be cold enough right now that you can even see your breath. As you breathe and you see the puff of air and then it's gone. Or as you walk outside on a cold morning and you have your cup of coffee and you see the steam, the vapor coming off that cup of coffee, but you can only trace it up so high before it dissipates and disappears. And it's those last few moments meanings that I think Solomon's really driving at in this book when he says, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Everything is fleeting in this world. It's a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. It appears, but only for a little while, and then it, it, it dissipates. And if you've ever tried to grasp a handful of steam, you've been left wanting what looks so solid, what looks so real, what looks so tangible, you realize is there, but then it's, it's really not there at all. And I think what Solomon is doing as he opens this book is he's trying to wrap our minds around and help us to understand that if we're looking for satisfaction in this world, we're looking for satisfaction in something that is, is, is a vapor. It's fleeting. It's there and then it's gone. And so, as Solomon is beginning to try to frame our perspective on this world and help us to understand what it is that we should be living for in this world, he wants us to understand that if we're trying to live for lasting satisfaction from the things that the world offers, we're going to continually find ourselves disappointed. We're going to continually find that the satisfaction that we experience is that vapor, it's fleeting. It's not that the world is meaningless, it's not that the world is futile but it's simply that if we're looking to find ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction here, what we're gonna find is we're gonna find that we're grasping at mist, we're grasping at steam off of a cup of coffee and it's not gonna last. Our first point together tonight, men, is this, abandon the search for lasting satisfaction under the sun. Abandon, forsake, leave behind the search for lasting satisfaction under the sun because it cannot be found here. We look for it, but it's not to be found. Yesterday, my newest nephew was born and he came into the world healthy and vibrant and just like any other newborn, he came into the world, what? Hungry, right? Crying and hungry. And I don't know, men, if, if you've ever held a, a young baby who's nursing and all of a sudden they start turning towards you. And that's your cue that you need to find the mom as quickly as possible, right? Because that baby's hungry and it's looking for something from you that you can't provide. Man, sometimes we're rooting at this world for satisfaction and nourishment that this world just simply cannot provide. We're like that newborn baby and we're looking to the world to try to be satisfied when the world doesn't have what we need to be satisfied. And God has created us to be satisfied in him. God has created us to be satisfied and anchored and, and fulfilled in what he has provided. And when we look to the world for that satisfaction, what we find is the things that appear to be so satisfying and initially, they're, they're illusory. It's that mist, it's that vapor, it's that steam, it's that fleeting vanity that's here and then it's gone. And that's why Solomon says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, all is vanity. Vanity. Solomon's again not arguing that we should give up on life. He's not arguing that we should say, Well, forget everything then. I'm going to just retreat and sit in my room and become a monk until the Lord comes back or I die. Rather, what he's doing is he's he's pulling back the curtain on the nature of the satisfaction that this world offers. Later in the book, he's going to tell us to enjoy life, he's going to tell us to enjoy our family. He's going to tell us to enjoy our wives. So it's not that he's saying that we need to forsake all good things that this world offers. He just wants to pull the the curtain back and make sure that we're not putting all of our hope and our trust and our confidence in those things to satisfy us. And Solomon's not the only author that had that concept. In fact, Solomon's dad said the same thing. Psalm 39, 5, King David said, behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, just a few handbreadths. That's all it is. That's my life is a few handbreadths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere hevel. It's the same word that King David uses there in Psalm 39, 5. All of mankind stands as a mere breath. It's here and then it's gone. Also Psalm 144, 4. A man is like a hevel. A man is like a breath. It's the same word. Here and gone, his days are like a passing shadow, fleeting. What about the New Testament? Do we see this anywhere in the New Testament? Well, I think we do. First John 2, 15 through 17. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away. The world is passing away. It's vaporous. It's here and then it's gone. It's passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So this was not simply Solomon who was preaching this to us. And then this shouldn't come as a a surprise to us, right? And we'll read more about this in in chapter two. So I don't want to get ahead of myself here. But at the same time, I mean, think about your life. Think about the things that bring you satisfaction and joy in your life. I just recently got a new TV, which I'm excited about. But at the same time, I was excited about the last TV that I got. But there was a reason why I wanted to get a new TV. Because the excitement and joy and satisfaction that the last TV brought me, what? It wore off. It was here and then it was gone. Or how about you you get a new car, right? And you're excited about your new car and you love your new car until the dealership starts talking about the next year's model. And you're saying, wait a minute, I just got this year's model, slow down. And then the new car smell, what it it wears off on you. And then you spill the first cup of coffee in the car and all of a sudden that new car that brought you so much joy and satisfaction and that deep breath of, of whatever that smell is that they've bottled and put inside every single car, whatever that is that gives you satisfaction, it's gone now it's it's fleeting it's 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 vaporous or how about the promotion in the raise that you received at last year's year end review and the satisfaction that that brought you and that sense of fulfillment that 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 brought you that your your boss recognized hey you know what you did a good job and we want to recognize that and so we're gonna we're going to bump your pay or we're going to give you a new title or we're going to give you a new office but then a year passes and and what do you want At the the end of the next year. You want another attaboy, don't you? You want him to come by and say, hey, you know what? This year we think you did a great job and here's a pay raise and here's a a bigger office and here's a company car to go along with it with the new car smell. So, man, we, we understand what Solomon's talking about here. That the satisfactions of this world, they don't last. Some of you may even have wonderful and fantastic and great families. And you may have such good and joyful times with your family. And your family may be a, a wonderful source of satisfaction to you. But let me ask you a few questions. Do they always satisfy you? Does your, your family, your friends, are they always fulfilling to you? Are you ever frustrated by them? Are you ever angered by them? Are you ever disappointed by them? Or maybe you've got the perfect family. You have the leave it to beaver family and everything is, you're answering no to all those questions. No, they never disappoint me. They never fail me. They never don't satisfy me. Everything's great. Well, let me ask you a question and I don't mean to be morose, but I want us to go there because Solomon wants us to go there as well. What if you lost your family tomorrow? You don't have the presence anymore with you. There's nothing left to satisfy you. So even our relationships, men, can't last when it comes to that desire to be satisfied and fulfilled. Even our relationships are vanity. It's it's fleeting, it's vaporous, it's here and then it's gone. Solomon's opening again is this this knockout blow and it's a knockout blow, men, not to leave us again laid out saying, oh man, here comes just a, a depressing ride over the next 12 chapters, but it's a knockout blow so that we can be rebuilt in a way that is a, a healthy way to view this world, a healthy way to view your new car or your new TV or your family or your promotion. Those things aren't bad. We don't need to feel bad about those things. We don't need to look at those things and say, Oh man, all that is evil and wrong. And and I don't want any of that. No, but we need to understand how to uh, approach those things, how to enjoy them in a way that honors the Lord, how to enjoy them in a way that is, is pleasing to him and right. Solomon continues. He says, what does a man gain? by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. Again, he's, he's asking us, what remains? Maybe your source of satisfaction, men, is in the, the job that you do. It's in the, the legacy that you're leaving behind, in the work that you do. And Solomon's asking, what's, what's really left over? And I'm not going to be a, a spoiler alert to what he's going to say about that later on, but It's not a helpful thing. It's not a pretty picture if that's where your confidence is. Solomon wants us to understand and wrap our minds around this that nothing lasts. What remains? The implied answer there is nothing. From all the toil and the sweat and the tears and the hours and the successes and the failures and the promotions and the raises and the firings and the sickness and the health and the exercise and the weddings and the birthdays, from all the, the children and the retirement funds and the investments and the vacations and the elections and, and, and everything else. Solomon's saying, Look, look at it all and realize that if that's where your hope is, your hope isn't something that's here right now, but it's going to be gone before you know it. And it's not going to last. None of it escapes Solomon's opening indictment vanity of vanities, vapor of vapors. Everything is a vapor. It's a mist. It's fleeting. It's here now, but it's going to be gone before you know it. And so, man, we cannot look for lasting satisfaction from what this world provides. And maybe this frustrates you. Maybe it irks you a little bit. Maybe you think, you know what, that's fine, but I'm, I'm different. I'm different because I, I, my source of satisfaction, it's going to last me. It's not going to let me down. It hasn't let me down yet. It won't let me down eventually. After all, Solomon didn't have a 4K LED TV, Right? He didn't have that new car, new chariot. Come on, that's exposed to the air. There's no way there was a new chariot smell. Solomon didn't have the zip code that we have. Solomon didn't have the job that you have. Solomon didn't have the wife that you have. No, he had 999 others. Guys, chapter two, Solomon's going to defeat that argument for us. And we have to remember, and it's helpful that God used Solomon to write this book. Because if there was ever a man that was qualified to say, I've done it all, I've seen it all, I've been been everywhere, I've spent it all, I've experienced it all, I've slept with more women, and I can tell you that if that's where your hope is, Solomon is uniquely qualified to indict the world as being vanity. And that's what he's doing here. Solomon's next words begin to unpack this concept a little bit more. He continues in verse four. He says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth it remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises again. The wind blows to the south and it goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again and again and again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It's already been in the ages before us. Solomon walks us through these cycles, these rhythms, these patterns in life. And here's what he says. He says in verse four, he says, look, a generation dies while another one is born, but the earth continues unmoved. He's like, your death and the birth of my nephew yesterday doesn't change anything about the earth. It's still spinning away, doing everything that it does. This is one of those moments when I'm flying that I'm, I'm reminded of this because we're, we're flying over all of these areas and, and I'm looking down thinking about all of the different people that live there and they have no clue who I am. I don't matter one iota to them. And if I died, it wouldn't even register on their, you know, friends, 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 friends radar. Right? I mean, he's trying to get, uh, help us to understand our insignificance. That this world has been turning and turning and turning and turning and generations have been dying off and being born and dying off and being born and dying off and being born. And yet the world keeps going. It's his gentle way of saying, hey, let's recalibrate our opinion of how important our lives really are. Well, he goes on, he says, not only does the generation come and go, but he says, let's look at the sun. The sun rises and then it sets and then it hastens all the way back around so that it can do what? The same thing again. It's just going to rise again tomorrow and set again tomorrow. It's predictable. The sun's going to rise. The sun's going to set. The sun's going to rise. The sun's going to set. And then he considers the wind. He says, well, consider the wind. The wind blows to the south until it bends back around and starts coming back up to the north. And then eventually it goes north for so long that it's going to bend around and come back what south. He says, the wind blows around and around and around and around and around. It's just on its circuits. It's on its cycles. And, and it's, it's never going to not do that. That's what the wind does. And then this one, I love the way he puts this. I think it's so helpful. He says, look, your, your eye is never going to say, okay, I've seen enough. And your ear is never going to say to you, okay, we've heard enough. Right? And this is First John 2, 15 through 17, isn't it? The lust of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Those things are, are, are never going to, our, our flesh is never going to say, okay, look, I've, I'm done. I've, I've had enough. We always want to see more. We always want to hear more. It's never going to satisfy us. There's, it's this, this idea, this never-ending source of information. And in fact, right before that, and I, I failed to put it down, but he talks about the streams. The streams run to the sea, but the sea is never full, and the streams never empty themselves. Again, it's this, this unbreaking pattern, and he's just saying this is the cycle of the world. And if you're looking for something new, it's, it's not going to be there because this is what the world has always done you can Instagram a sunset tomorrow night and post it on social media and everybody's going to be excited about it, but it's going to look the same as the sunsets that were there three weeks ago and the sunsets that were there 300 years ago. Maybe there's some minor variations here and there, but the sun sets and there's colors in the sky. That's how it works. There's nothing new for us under the the sun. Solomon wants us to consider this pattern. And his conclusion is this, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. You may be thinking about the latest iPhone or iPad or car or TV and think to yourself, well, Solomon obviously didn't know what he was talking about because there's new things happening all the time. But here's what Solomon was, was, was saying. We have to remember verse two. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What Solomon is saying here is there's nothing new that's going to break out of that pattern. There's nothing new that the world is going to come up with that's going to satisfy you lasting, that's going to provide a, a, a substance for you to hold on to. So, that, that new iPhone. And men, we know this, right? We know this. You buy the, the, in fact, the iPhone 12 was just released and they're already talking about the iPhone 13 on Twitter right now. It's not even cool in the hands yet. It, and, and they're already talking about the next one. Why? Because the world knows. There's, there, there's nothing new under the sun. If you're looking for satisfaction here, you're going to be left wanting. Point number two tonight is this. Recognize life's signal, cyclical redundancy. Recognize life's cyclical redundancy. That redundancy of, of not satisfying us. Maybe the next thing will satisfy me. Maybe the next relationship will satisfy me. Maybe the next promotion will satisfy me. Maybe the, the next geographic location will satisfy me. Maybe the next house will satisfy me. Maybe the next promotion will satisfy me. And you're always saying, well, maybe the next, maybe the next, maybe the next, maybe the next why. Because of what Solomon is saying here, there's nothing new under the sun. And if we look over and over and over again, to these things that are being released and saying maybe this will satisfy, we're simply gonna find ourselves disappointed, disenfranchised with this world and wondering what we have to do to find fulfillment. Think of all the generations, men, that have come before you in your family. Even the happiest of them, the most satisfied amongst them, the wealthiest amongst them. What good is that doing them now? As Pastor Mike so often puts it, what is any of this going to matter a hundred years from now? And I think it's safe to say for all of us on this patio, a hundred years from now, Lord willing, at least, none of us are going to be here. So the answer to the question, what is any of this going to matter a hundred years from now is nothing. And we often talk about that on, on, okay, so I can endure the trial. I can endure the suffering because a hundred years from now, that's not going to matter because I'm going to be in glory with Christ. And there's truth there, man. But I also want you to think that way when it comes to all the good things that you have in your life. And that's what Solomon's wanting us to do. He's wanting us to say, okay, so what's it gonna matter 100 years from now that your 401k is blasting off the charts right now? What's it going to matter 100 years from now that you have the brand new Tesla? What's it going to matter 100 years from now that you have uh, the, the, the trophy wife? What's it going to matter 100 years from now that your kids went to that college? What's it going to matter 100 years from now that you got that promotion? He wants us to look at that and to think that way and to go, oh, wow, 100 years from now, that's not going to matter at all. And then he wants us to begin to ask the question, which is what he's teasing out with us, okay, if that's true and it's not gonna matter at all and it is just vaporous, it's here today and gone tomorrow, how should I then live? How should I then live? See, Solomon right now in this opening passage is the surgeon with the scalpel. And in these 11 verses, he's he's cutting and it hurts at times. But he's cutting to expose what we need to bring to the light, what we need to confess, those idols in our lives. And he's cutting and he's, he's wanting to remove them so that then he can instill in us instead what is good and what is right and what is healthy. And that is how we should view this life. Solomon's the the, the pastor that is, is expertly crafting and delivering in. In, in giving to us the, the hard news before he then begins to help us understand and how we should live in light of that. Solomon is the, the counselor right now who's confronting our wayward living before then he begins to bring in and say, and, and so now that we've seen that, here's the, the the correction. If you think to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where Paul writes there that all scripture is, is God-breathed and useful. And he talks about correction and reproof there. And there's that reproof, which is the, the rebuke, but then the correction is the, the positive side. Well, we're being reproved by Pastor Solomon in this opening passage that we're looking at together so that he can then correct us as the text continues. Well, Solomon is set up where he's going then in verse 11 because maybe we've thought about, okay, well, there's no substance to be held on to And there's nothing new that's going to change that. And so then maybe my response is, okay, Solomon, well, then my satisfaction is going to be found in the fact that I'm going to live a life that's going to mean something. I'm going to live a life that's going to be remembered. I'm going to leave a legacy that my kids and grandkids are going to champion. And that's where my satisfaction, that's where my meaning, that's where my hope is. And Pastor Solomon grabs his needle and goes after that bubble as well here in verse 11. He says, there's no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. You know, I bet if we went around the, the patio this evening and asked each man, hey, what was the name of your great, great, great grandfather? Maybe a handful of you would know because you've sent your saliva to the Mormons and they've given you your history. But most of us can't even go three or four generations back and tell you the names of our family members. How about this? Do you men know who invented the the Q-tip? A man named Leo Gerstenzang. Leo Gerstenzang. Or how about the the toothbrush? Anybody know who invented the toothbrush? William Addis in 1857. I don't know about that because I heard that George Washington had something that was like a toothbrush, although he had wooden teeth, so I think Addis improved on things. But all that to say, Addis is not a household name for us, I don't think. In fact, there's not even an Addis toothpaste out there. How about who invented deodorant? Should be thankful for this person, yes? Do you know who it was? It was a woman. Her name was Edna Murphy in 1941. Probably got sick and tired of her husband's body odor. Said, I got to do something about this. So Edna Murphy, God bless her, invented deodorant. How about power steering? Some of you gearheads out there. Who invented power steering? Francis W. Davis in 1926. Francis W. Davis in 1926. Who invented the light switch? John Henry Holmes in 1884. Who invented the clock? Peter Henlein in 1511. And the reason I bring those things up, man, is is you think about those things. Q-tips, toothbrush, deodorant, power steering, light switch, and clocks. My guess is we all use those things on a pretty regular basis, don't we? They're pretty significant to us. In fact, if we didn't have them, life wouldn't go as well as it does now. And yet none of us knew who was responsible for their invention. They're pretty significant things, aren't they? But that's Solomon's point here. Nobody's going to remember you think you're going to make a lasting impact. But the reality is nobody's going to remember. Maybe for a generation, maybe two, maybe three if you're fortunate. But eventually your lasting legacy is going to be a name and two dates on a gravestone that a few people walk by every once in a while. And that's going to be your satisfaction and significance from an earthly perspective. Our final point tonight is this, grapple with your own finitude. Grapple with your own finitude. And ask yourself, man, are you okay with being forgotten? Are you okay with having your life's work forgotten? Are you okay with the reality that your great-great-grandchildren may not even know your name? You know, I still remember a sermon that was preached when I was in seminary by Eric Zeller, who's one of our, our missionaries that we support. And he was preaching the sermon and he took the pulpit and he had a rope, which was odd. And that rope went back behind him and it was a, a school in a, on a stage and there was a, a curtain. And the rope went back behind the curtain. And I remember during the, the sermon he was preaching and he was talking about that idea that our, our life is but a few handbreadths. And he was talking about understanding the scope of eternity. And he said, you know, imagine as that rope trails off behind the curtain, that that rope went on for an infinite distance. And he held up the rope and it had a single one inch wide red strip of tape on the rope. And he said, you know, if, if I hold up the rope like this, and he held his, his hands about five, six inches apart, he said that one inch strip of, of red tape looks pretty significant. And he said, but the more we zoom out, and the more we, we stretch that rope out and the more we look at the, the size of that rope, and he said, if, if we could see an infinitely long rope, he said, all of a sudden, that one inch red strip of tape looks pretty insignificant, doesn't it? And he was saying to us, you know, that's our life here on earth when it comes to the grand scheme of things from God's perspective in eternity. We are but a few handbreadths we are finite. We are not infinite. The things that we do are finite. They are not infinite. And the reality is, and what Solomon's telling us here is, men, we are not going to be remembered. So if your hope is in leaving the legacy, eventually, men, it will be forgotten. It will be forgotten. Your life's work will be forgotten. The inheritance that you're leaving for your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, it will run out. Solomon's gonna talk about that more later as well. But like David said, we are but a few handbreadths and surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Psalm 144, man is like a breath and his days like a passing shadow. Man, in this opening passage, Solomon is systematically undermining so much about the things that we look for to find significance, to find fulfillment, to find satisfaction. He's dealing us this knockout blow so that again, he can help us back up off the mat and help us to think about how we should live in light of the reality that this world is vaporous, that the, the pleasures in this world are fleeting. That they're here today, and gone tomorrow, and they cannot last. He's wanting to make sure that we're not putting our hope and our confidence and our trust and our, our lives' ambitions in the wrong things. And I read the end, and, and, and really it's the whole point of the, the title of the series, The End of the Matter, and I've, uh, we've already read the book, and I read the last verse earlier with us tonight, and, and, and so I'm, I'm not trying to hide this from you, man, that the the point is, and what Solomon's going to do for us, he's going to help us to to understand that we need to live our lives in the fear of the Lord. We need to live our lives knowing that one day we are going to appear before him. We need to live our lives knowing that even the the good things that he's given us, yes, enjoy them, but enjoy them as a gift from God and live your life in faithful obedience to him. And that's the the nutshell message of this book of Ecclesiastes. But for us to get that, first, he's got to lay us out. And that's what this opening chapter and even into chapter two is going to do. As Pastor Solomon is going to walk us through and, and really cut the legs out from under us on so much of what we said, oh yeah, that's where my significance is. That's where my hope is. That's where my satisfaction is. And so, man, I just want to encourage you to stick with us through this. Because I think it's going to be helpful, man. And and as we look through this and as we continue this study, I think there's going to be areas that that the Lord uses that that surgeon scalpel with his word and and cuts open and says, hey, you know, maybe you didn't realize that you were looking for satisfaction too much in this area. But you know what? You really kind of are. Maybe you didn't realize that this was an idol in your life, but it really has become that. And so, man, I encourage you to to utilize your small group time well together as you, uh, uh, Lord willing, just lean into one another and benefit and grow through this study of the book of Ecclesiastes because I guarantee us men, as if, if we give ourselves over to this book, this book will transform us. God's word never returns void and he will go after us and he will conform us more and more to the image of Christ. And Ecclesiastes has a lot to do with just that, teaching us how can we live like Christ? How can we follow Christ in this world knowing that yes, it is a world that is fleeting, And its pleasures are fleeting. And so let's remember that, men, and let's commit ourselves to this study and say, okay, Lord, teach me. I wanna sit under your word. I wanna sit under your, your leadership, Lord, through this book, and I want you to use your word, use scripture, God, to conform my life more to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the book that's before us, Ecclesiastes. We are thankful, Lord, that it is a book that does provide challenging, hard realities and truths for us to wrap our minds around. And yet it's a book that is so good for us. And so I just pray that we would study it well, that we would uh, embrace its, its difficult things, its difficult truths, Lord, knowing that you are working on us through this. And Lord, as, as Solomon pivots here in the book and begins to teach us and instruct us how we should then live in light of these difficult truths, I pray that we would, uh, that we would embrace those things and begin to apply them and, and instill them in our lives. Lord, we are grateful that the the final conclusion is not that everything is vanity, not that everything, including the things over the sun, is vanity, but simply what is under the sun, Lord. And we know you, the creator of the sun, the creator of this world, the creator of this universe, and that is where significance lies. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be pleased with the rest of our time together this evening. In Christ's name, amen.